on this episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with friend of PSG Talk, Carl Oscar Kallström, on a series of topics. The first is a discussion of officiating and the implementation of VAR at this year's World Cup. What impact will it have and what type of men are capable of taking the pressure of this massive tournament on their shoulders? Every fan just waiting for them to make a mistake. We also talk about Carl's home country of Sweden and their improbable run to this season's World Cup. Do they have a chance with their tactical discipline to continue and shock the world? I'm your host, Mark Damon. Join me for all of this and more. It's officiating Sweden and more here on the World Cup Project. Carl Oscar Kallström, welcome to the World Cup Project. Thank you so much. And I, Pleasure I, to be on. Yeah, I appreciate having you on because I always respect your opinions on certain things. And today is one of those days where I wanted to get your opinion on a few sort of not... Um, not necessarily um, topics that you think about, but this is, I think, something that's going to be very underrated in this World Cup, and that is VAR and the officials in general in the World Cup. So before we get into that, I want you to just talk a little bit about your fandom, how you became a fan of the sport, your first memories of it, were your first memories of the World Cup, um, what teams you root for, why you root for them, and... Um, how you kind of got into being a uh, PSG uh, PSG Twitter, I guess, what do you call it? Twitter <laughs> blogger, something like that? Yeah. And I would say you have one of the better ones. I've seen some pretty bad ones. <laughs> I think you have one of the better ones. You're not sort of ranting and raving and screaming all the time. Uh, so just talk a little sometimes. bit about that, Carl Oscar. Yeah, so regarding my first football experience, I... Remember it quite fondly. I went down to the local park when I was like, I think I was about five years old. Just got thrown in the deep end in goal for my first ever football game without, without having met any of my teammates uh, from my local team. And I think I conceded 10 goals uh, during the first 15 minutes or so. <laughs> and that was the start of my footballing journey. After that, my family wasn't really a f- big football fans. My dad followed the Swedish national team as any Swedish football fan would. But from my mother's side, we re- really didn't have any football footballing conne- connection. Um, I did, however, um, go to school, met a lot of friends. I mean, football is such a big and global sport. I got thrown... Uh, yeah, in, into discussions, into uh, yeah, in, into school ground games when I was just a little kid, and grown up with the sport ever since. Uh, regarding PSG, uh, I have a I have friend French relatives and French speaking relatives. My grandmother was a French teacher, and my mother speak speaks French, so when I was little, I always used to try to learn French, even though I'm not very good at it, since I don't actually live in France. But I think I watched my first game in Paris, I believe it was 2001 uh, or 2002 with my grandpa. Um, And I don't have, I was only four or five years old, so I don't have that many memories, but it was my first football game ever. And 
then I I would lie if I didn't say that QSI takeover and Slat and coming to the club influenced my fandom, but it was sort of still always my my go-to team, even though it wasn't very easy to follow them during the most part between 2002 and let's say 2012, um, mostly because of the lack of. Uh, streams online during that time and uh, av- av- availability uh, broadcast-wise in Sweden. Um, and when you come to the Swedish national team, you, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I basically started watching them with my dad, all, all the national team games. Even though I during my yeah, up till I was maybe 10, I didn't understand that much, but I still rooted for the team. We went to the national stadium. Yeah, it was a really good experience, even though the team wasn't always that brilliant. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me, I guess. And we're going to talk also about Sweden, because as you've explained to our listeners, you are indeed Swedish. Yes, I am. And I think there's a storyline there that we can kind of sink our teeth into. But before we get to that, we're going to start off with our talk about officiating. And specifically, we're going to get into VAR. But let's talk yeah. about sort of the, in your mind, when you sit down to watch a game, what do you feel like the job, and I'm not just talking about the World Cup, I'm talking about any game in general. What is your idea of a well-officiated game? Like when you sit there watch a game for 90 minutes, and when the game's over and you turn it off, what is your idea of a well-officiated game? Or what do you want to see from the officials in a game that you're watching as a fan? So, in officiating, when you don't have any kind of technical um, uh, things to help you with, there will be mistakes. So that's not the main thing for me uh, in regards to officiating. I think... The most important thing is for the referee or the referees to be able to stay on top of the game. When I coach uh, football, uh, I, I coach ten years, ten-year-olds. I, I can make it's easy for me to make right tactical things, but if I can't control the group as a whole. The thing, the whole thing goes down. So it's the same thing with the officiating, in my opinion. You need to have, you need to earn that respect from the players. Who they, uh, yes. So you basically don't lose the game, as you can, as you see in some instances, officiating, um, uh, officiating around Europe. That, that of course, with the added, uh, yeah ability to see wrong and right calls. Um, Yeah, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, and I tend to think that, especially when you watch um, major, when you watch major high-level football, on aggregate, I think they get more calls right than they do wrong. And if you watch some of these um, these lesser leagues, you even watch MLS. And I know you're, you don't watch a lot of MLS. <laughs> I don't find the officiating to be very good in MLS. I find it to be very um, subpar. And I think if you go into lesser leagues around the world where there isn't a lot of money, where there isn't as much training, 
I think you'll see some of that. But for the most part, when you're watching the top five leagues, and I count that as England, Germany, France, Spain, and um, Italy, yeah. for the most part, you're getting good officials. 95% of the time, you're getting good, decent, competent officials. What do you think separates those good officials in those leagues from those great officials? Because there are, you'll and we'll watch. And let's take the French league for example. There's, a, I would say, two to three really good French referees, and then there's a bunch of okay, decent ones. What do you think separates those great referees from the okay, good ones? Same thing when you talk about what separates a good a good player from a great player. What separates a good ref from a great ref? It's usually is not, not not necessarily um, the experience they have, but the, the way they use their experience in officiating, uh, and the way they in that uh, uh, in, in the way they sort of earn the respects of the players and the fans as well. You can see that as soon as they step onto the pitch and they grab the match ball, the players look up up to them with respect, even though they're not teammates, but uh, and, and then you see maybe the less the the, the mediocre uh, uh, the mediocre um, referees they get challenged a lot more on the decisions they're making. So essentially, just what, what kind of respect they convey on, onto the players and how much the players challenge their decisions. What that comes down to. Um, Sure, I believe possibly has some something to do, with like in individual um, traits they have. I'm not that well read up on every single referee, but maybe you have some some thoughts on that as well. Well, yeah, and you you and you think about it, and I always feel like the referees that I enjoy watching. I enjoy watching. Um, I enjoy watching Felix Birch. Uh, from Germany, he refereed the second um, leg of the PSG Real Madrid game, and actually, the, I actually thought he did a really good job. Like he's going yeah, to the World Cup, great. and I really enjoy his officiating because it's fairly consistent. And I think that my deal with officials is as long as they're consistent in how they call the game. And if you go back and watch that game, he was calling that game very lightly. And he was letting a lot of things go, but he was letting a lot of things go for both sides. He wasn't calling the he wasn't calling the touch fouls. So when you saw Marco Verratti get up and scream at the official, I think Felix Burge had the right mind to throw him out, honestly, because yeah. there wasn't it, he wasn't calling it either way. It's not like he was being inconsistent in his calls. And to me, consistency is a key. And sort of just talk about that consistency and what you want to see as a fan, in the sense that you want to see, whatever the way the game is called, you want to see it called that same way for both sides. And if you can, off the top of your head, think about some of those games that maybe you don't remember being called necessarily evenly, or you thought one team got more calls than the other. And that can be in both club level and international level as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's easy when, when you're a fan of a certain football club or a football or an international team you can always look at the extremes and those situations where your team has been in your opinion 
unfairly treated by the referee. Uh, as you said, inconsistent officiating, inconsistent ways that the ref um, adapts to certain situations. You have, of course, uh, Denis Ayetkin, the ref who officiated uh, the <laughs> remontada uh, last season uh, Barcelona PSG 6-1 that as a fan of PSG was for me very annoying because I, did, I didn't feel he had that consistency as you, you, you spoke about he could in two different uh, in two, dis, two situations that were very similar he would um, yeah, he, he would have two different outcomes, uh, so to speak. He would uh, he would maybe point to a free kick uh, in the first situation, and he wouldn't in the other. And that's um, not even speaking about the <laughs> the penalties and not, not penalties during, during that game. Um, but right on top, over the top of my head, I don't have a certain match apart from maybe that one that really stands out and I'll say in the World Cup just sort of to go to specific moments you talk about yeah. that Italy-France game I believe it was in 80 would have probably been in 86 it was the it was that foul out of the box if you remember what I'm talking oh, yeah. about that goat win yeah, yeah I've seen it uh, yeah I, uh, um, yeah I'll look it up just so I have it officially but that a play like that where that where the where the player should be thrown out of the game, where the goalie should have been tossed out of the game for the foul, and for some reason it's not called. Yeah. Something like, you uh, know, a game like that, I think the the foul against um, Mexico in the 2014 World Cup, the Noera Penal, I would throw that yeah. one in there. Um, you even throw the hand of God in there. Yeah. I would say the hand of God is sort of the more famous one where... Because it was who it was, because it was the situation that it was in, the ref sort of ate his whistle and let the play go, and it was pretty clear to be a handball. I think, I think that one, if anything, is was a pretty um, that one was a pretty clear one to be um, to be completely honest. Yeah, I actually haven't seen in in these in these situations as well. You have to always look. Look at it, sort of the 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 refs positioning. It was it good? Did he actually see the either foul or the handball that you're talking about? Yeah. But yeah, the hand of God. I mean, it, it's hard to know exactly what went out went on in the ref's head, but it's definitely one of those situations. Uh, yeah, and just to bring it back, the the one I was talking about before was the uh, Patrick Basti Stone. Uh, Harold Schumacher collision in the 1982 World Cup, and that right. was in the um, that was in the semifinal. So yeah. theoretically, in that case, if that's called a red card, France is now a man up. Germany loses its goalkeeper, and that is a World Cup that Germany would go on to win, I believe. Let me just. Yeah. I believe Germany went on to win that. Yeah. Six Germany went on. Nope. It actually was won by Italy. So there's a little bit of justice going on there. Fair enough. Um, now, when it comes to picking these World Cup officials, this I find interesting. If you look at the way they the way they're picked, there's all there's a certain amount of referees that are picked from different confederations. So the way it works is that officials get FIFA certified. 
So whatever you go through whatever training, you go through whatever experience you have, and eventually you get certified by FIFA to referee games. And specifically with the hope of officiating in the World Cup. So they throw your name in a big pool, they rate you out, and then they call you in for um, for these big World Cup games. And this is where I think the problem happens. And I've seen this a lot in the World Cup, where officials who are not used to officiating against teams and officiating, officiating players, specifically star players who play in the top five leagues. So, for example, yeah. you're having referees from Senegal, from Egypt, from El Salvador, Costa Rica, Uruguay, um, Tahiti. You have some from Turkey. You have some from Saudi Arabia. You have some from Uzbekistan. And you have this sort of... I mean, really. You have these Uzbekistani officials who you know, referee in their leagues where it's just a totally sort of different atmosphere and pressure. And now you're throwing them into games with Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and Luka Modric. And talk a little bit about sort of what you think that might be like. Just as these are the, in a certain way, these are the dreams of these officials to to officiate these games, but then they realize that they actually have to officiate these games and they have to deal with these different personalities and all of these stakes. Definitely. I think, I mean, mo most of these referees are probably very, very good referees when it comes to making decisions and so on. But as you said, many of them also don't have the experience refereeing or officiating players of that caliber, of that level. It's the same thing if you would look at managers from those, or coaches from those nations and those federations. You probably have very, very, very good tacticians or um, very good youth developers, but you, if you would throw one of those coaches into one of the big clubs or the big national teams in Europe or in uh, the big uh, footballing nations uh, of South, uh, South America, they wouldn't be up for it uh, when it comes to man, man management. And it's, it's exactly the same thing when it comes to refereeing. Some of them would probably do a good job, and but you do risk um, some of them maybe shirking or not being able to handle the egos uh, around them and being afraid of what will be written in the press or in, in mass media and so on. So it's definitely a thing I hope FIFA with all, the, all their flaws yes. uh, think about when it comes to, uh, to, to officiating in the World Cup. Yeah, and I bring it up and I think it's an interesting topic in the sense that these are human beings. From all walks of life, not all of them are full-time officials. Some of them have, obviously, some of them have side jobs. I'd say most of them probably have side jobs. So you're, you know, you referee on the weekends and you deliver mail in the, in the week, or you cook, or you sell insurance, whatever it is that you do. Yeah. And then every four years, you're thrown into this high stakes, you know. Everyone in the entirety of the world is watching this. And here are these guys that, again, some of them are, you know, 
driving driving meat trucks on the week. You know, I'm not not to be too uh, hyperbolic about it, but you know, these are not wealthy men. These are not you know, these are not millionaires, and they have all of this pressure on them. And I can imagine that, and I and I believe this, and I'm pretty sure you know. This isn't really provable, but I'm pretty sure the officiating in the World Cup is probably worse than it is in major European or even other leagues, you know, club leagues, because of that. Now, let's throw a couple names out at you. Let's talk about, since we you watch the French League just as much as I do, let's talk yeah. about the only French official that gets into this World Cup as a head official is Clement Turpin. <laughs> let's talk a little bit uh, about Clement Turpin. Clement Turpin. Uh, I remember the first game I well well the, the, the only the first game I can think about where I actually noticed him was the it has to be I mean, 2000, 2013 2012 PCOM when he sent off Motta uh, for a I think it was a sort of stomp or something on, on it's Tiago uh, Mata so it's probably a stomp yeah it's probably uh, I think it was, yeah it was uh, Mathieu Valbuena uh, and PC went on winning that game 2-1 uh, and I remember just looking at his face and I would rate <laughs> I, I was younger back then um, as well but thing is he, he can be a very good referee at times he but uh, as many others, he is prone to mistakes, and a lot. Of, uh, you, you can see when when he's officiating, many players don't really like him. <laughs> uh, from my, my experience, at least. So, what are yours? Uh, sort of. I think Turpani. I think he's a good ref. I think he's a genuinely yeah. good official. He wouldn't be officiating at the World Cup and in the Champions League and Europa League if he wasn't. The yeah. issue is with him is he has this sort of, um, he has this, I, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. He has this sort of, um, bought, like, uh, to use sort of an American term, he sort of has that Billy Badass sort of, I'm not taking shit from anybody. I'm the boss here. This is my show. He's got a little Clattenburg to him. Yeah. Whereas, like, Clattenburg knew how to, you know, Mark Clattenburg, the old, um, the British official that now is in the Saudi Arabian League because he likes money, um, <laughs> he he had that sort of, you know, this is, I'm here to perform, I'm part of this too kind of deal. And Turpon has a little bit of that. And, you know, he's not somebody that's going to let a guy yell at him and sort of talk him down. He's going to show the card. And yeah. I, 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 if he's the one, I wouldn't actually have him be the one, the official. I actually think there's a guy better than him in that league. And I'm trying to remember what his name is right Oh, yeah. I would have it be Frank Schneider, if you know who I'm talking about. The tall, I think so. the tall guy, black hair, pretty tall, black, jet black hair. Yeah, let's see if I can. Uh, yeah, he's my favorite see. league unofficial, just because I think he... He's the most level-headed of them, and I've oh, yeah. never had an issue with a Frank Schneider call. Not one time have I ever had an issue with him, where he makes himself more about the game. Let's go through some of these other guys. Um, you got Gianluca Rossi, who was the referee in the first leg of the PSG Real Madrid uh, Champions League round of 16 this year. 
Um, how yeah. did you think he did in that game? I'm trying to remember. I think he did semi well. Uh, that was the that was the Lachelso penalty. The oh, yeah. um, exactly. the Sergio Ramos possible handball. I mean, those kinds of situations happen all the time, and I think it's harsh to judge a ref on one or two calls. Uh, but it, as I said, I'm not. I haven't watched him at, at least um, uh, that many times. But I, from what I've heard and uh, from what I remember, he is usually a pretty decent ref. And as I said, mistakes will happen and. Yeah there will be 50-50 calls that go not your way. Yeah, and to round out the uh, the UEFA officials, the ones you'll know, uh, Antonio Lajos, and if you look him up, you'll know him when you uh, you'll know him when you see him. You'll know who he, exactly who he is. He's he's in the middle of a lot of UEFA games. He's he's refed yeah. a lot of big games. Felix Britsch, uh, the German official. Yeah, he's officiated a bunch of them. Um, on the American side, you have Mark Geiger, who's a fairly famous American referee. He's been around. He's done big games. And, I mean, that rounds out the people you'd know. But you <laughs> yeah. have 36 referees and 63 assistant referees yeah. for this World Cup. Now, let's talk about the big innovation that's going to happen, and that's VAR. What do you think – What do you th- first of all, what is your opinion of VAR? as a concept in general, before getting into it, sort of how it's done in practice. Yeah. yeah I so think in theory, yeah. what do you think of the idea of VAR as a European? It, um, I think is no questions asked. It has, or it should have been implemented earlier, I think. Uh, I think it's a natural progression given the technology we have. And, if, of course, there will be be things that doesn't work brilliantly uh, in the beginning, but to not have uh, to not use the, te- uh, the te- technology we have at our at our disposal yeah. would be would be foolish. Uh, I mean, you have you have VR in different uh, variations in tennis. You have Hawkeye. You have it in I believe you have it in cricket. Not that I watched that. In- sport that much you have it in many different sports so yeah, and especially for, 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 yeah, yeah. Go, yeah go ahead and, uh, no uh, go ahead yeah and especially done. i was gonna say especially in pretty much every single american sport mm-hmm. like we've gotten to a point now in america where we've had a fish we've had replay around for the last 25 30 years so like for us as americans replay really isn't you know there's there's people who don't like it but for the most part, people just sort of accept it as part of the game, and it doesn't really affect any, like, ratings-wise or anything like that. But do you buy or do you see merit in the argument that football as a game should be without replay? That the idea of the game gets tarnished in some way, or the perf- to use a really trite kind of turn of phrase, perfect imperfection. Is there something to the charm of... You know, imperfect men officiating an imperfect game played by imperfect players. Is there something to that sort of romanticism, or is it we have to get nearly every call right? Like in that spectrum, where do you kind of fall? 
uh, yeah. So I think when if you if you look at science, you always have you always want to limit the amount of variables that goes into uh, into result of the study you're making. So when I'm when I when I look at a football game, I want the player's ability and the coach's ability and the audience uh, the supporters' ability to come through and to have another factor uh, affecting that I think is uh, not stupid but it's uh, when you have other possibilities I think you you need to look at them because at the end of the day the officiating should be done to the highest possible quality and not um, not not to have some sort of some kind of romanticized idea of it um, so to you just to try to make football be about the players and the coaches and the, the supporters in the stands is, is is really what it's all about in my opinion yeah and now down to sort of we talk about it in theory but also in practice now there's two issues with VAR in my mind and I think one of them is fixable the other one is going to be a lot more um, it's going to be a lot more of a fight one of those is the time it takes to well they're actually kind of the same issue just in a different way one of them is sort of the time it takes to um, call down and you know who's making the call how quickly is it relayed to the central to the central official how quickly does the central official make the call on the field? And how do you let the fans know that this is going to go to review? How does the referee know? Because in American sports, especially in football, American football, the referee has a mic. He's mic'd. Yeah. So when – and he's mic'd live to the crowd. So when there's a penalty, the referee go, can go – he looks at the hard camera, the you know the, the steady camera, and he goes, yeah. offsides on the defense, five-yard penalty, replay first down. And everyone knows yep. what's happening. In basketball, there's very sort of demonstrative calls of this is a foul or technical foul. He puts his, you know, he makes a T with his hand. And everyone mm-hmm. in the stands knows what's happening. In football, in, in world football, it's a little different because officials sometimes are not as demonstrative in what they call. So you'll see the goal scored, and then everyone will celebrate. They'll run to the center, and then the ref will hold everyone up, and he'll put his hand to his ear, and they'll wait for like a minute. And then eventually, they the fans catch on to what's going on. So that, to me, is the first issue. They have to make it very clear when they're going to VAR, and I think the audience at home, not even at home, but the audience in the stadium needs to know exactly what's happening. The second issue is, in football, you don't stop the clock. So you have to account for how much time you're taking on the replay. And if you go three minutes on a replay, you have to put that three minutes back at the end of the game or the end of the half. So just sort of talk about that. And would you be or do you think football fans would be open to this idea? And it would be such a radical changing of what the game is. But on VAR replays, just stopping the clock. And then starting it again when they went back in play. I know that's sacrilegious. 
but it's the way replay yeah. works in every other sport in the entire world. Yeah, um, uh, it's hard for me because I, I would personally just, if you would improve the speed in which the, the decisions are made, uh, in whatever means you have, if you have just a sort of control tower or whatever that can look at the replay very quickly and give the ref a, uh, a clear decision, you could cut down the time the decision takes to make, and thus don't, and then you don't have to stop the clock for as long as you have as you do right now, as you've seen being done in many cup the domestic cup competitions this year or this season. Uh, generally, I would be against stopping the clock. I don't know why. It's probably just a personal thing. I'm used to having the. Uh, yeah, the the the, uh, um, the no, fourth official and I, is holding I totally up that. admit that what I'm suggesting is football sacrilege. I totally understand <laughs> that, but it would certainly be an indicator of okay, we're going to replay the clock stopped. Yeah, but I think that then you also run the risk of people questioning when uh, if you have a lengthy injury or you have someone that has to. A certain call, other call that takes time. Should you stop the clock then? Um, but it's, it's, it's uh, well, it's, an, it's a possibility, of course. Uh, then you, you also have the question in, in, in like broadcasting terms uh, when you speak about it's, it's, since football is such a big sport and it's broadcast in so many places around the world. Like. I heard the I think it was like Sky Sport pundits speaking about this that there would be a problem if the clock was stopped. I don't know why actually, but um, yeah, problems like that as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm personally just not very uh, for the idea. Um, but there, as with everything, there are pros and cons, of course. Yeah, and I think the idea here being that this is going to be very experimental. And there's there's going to be moments in this World Cup where VAR is going to look really silly, where the, the time it takes is going to look silly, and there's going to be a moment where there's a big goal, and there's going to be a moment even maybe where Messi scores a big goal, and everyone's euphoric in the stands, and all the human emotion is being poured out, and then the official's going to stand there, and he's going to put his hand to his ear, and... He's going to go, no goal. Half the stands are going to realize what happened and start booing. People aren't going to know what's going on. There's going to be an issue. The question is, does FIFA have sort of the intestinal fortitude to deal with the issues that it's going to have to deal with? There are going to be glitches with this. There's going to be problems. Are they willing to ride that through? Or do you think this is one of those years where things where they do it one year... Everyone sort of, you know, there's people that don't like it, and then everyone sort of piles on, and then they just decide, nope, we're not doing this ever again. Because that's a possibility here. Well, I tend to disagree. I think it's it's inevitable, in, in my opinion, that mm. VR will be implemented in most sort of levels of the sport. If you go from the top leagues down... 
Um, w- when it comes to just the World Cup, I believe that you need to. I don't know if they will, but you, you have to have a system in in which you can convey to the fans what decision is being made and why. If that is uh, as with the NFL, that you have uh, the ref being wired to a microphone, or if you use the uh, the the big screen in, in the stadium, but, but you have to let the fans know what's happening. They are, after all, the I don't want to say the most important fans, but they are the ones that actually pays for the tickets. Yeah, and they um, they need to be respected for for what they are. I agree. And do you think this is going to be? Do you think that if I had to ask, and I know it's impossible because you don't know how the games are going to go, but do you feel like VAR is going to be a story coming out of this World Cup? Do you feel like the officiating is always going to be a story? But do you think VAR specifically, do you, and this might even just be sort of a gut feeling, but do you think it's going to be an issue coming out? Do you think it's going to be, the of the top five things we remember from this World Cup, do you think VAR is going to be one of them? It's undoubtedly, undoubtedly going to be one of the sort of footnotes when, when you look back at this World Cup, it's, it's history after all. It's a very big decision from FIFA. At this moment in time, I, I believe it's impossible to know. Is there even going to be a big call that is actually um, decided using VAR, VAR, especially in the latter stages of the tournament, in the quarters, in the finals, in the semifinals, and so on? We don't know yet. Um so, is that going to be uh, mentioned in some uh, in some capacity? As to what capacity, I don't know. Uh, at this moment in time. Yeah, and I don't think we can ever know for sure. I feel like there's going to be one moment where this thing's going to explode, and you're going to have a controversy. It's just again, if you ride, if they, if everybody can sort of, you know, settle down and ride through it, I think there'll be a. I think we'll have it for years and years to come. Uh, let's switch to Sweden, the country of yes. your birth, the country you currently live in. Exactly. Um, now, I, I, to be completely honest, know Sweden pretty much for um, uh, Ingmar, uh, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. And Bergman films. That that was sort of my introduction to Sweden as a general concept. That and the Swedish chef from the Muppets, but um, I don't know how that's viewed yeah. in Sweden, but. Um, <laughs> It's, it's a stereotype that still lives on. I will say that. <laughs> but um, let's talk about Sweden's national team. Now, Sweden in the early era of FIFA in the World Cup is one of the more successful teams. They went to the quarterfinals in 34. They finished in fourth place in 38. They finished in third place in the famous 1950 World Cup. They were the runners-up in 1958. They were the team that Pele beat to win Brazil's first World Cup. And then they've sort of fallen off from there. 62 and 66, they didn't qualify, did not get out of the group stages until 1994, when they actually finished third place in that World Cup. Now, if I go back into my my notes slash Wikipedia here... Um, Sweden lost to Brazil 1-0 in Pasadena, California in the Rose Bowl. 
in the yeah. semifinals. And ever since then, they didn't qualify in 98, the round of 16 in 02 and 06. And they have yet to qualify since. They have now officially qualified for the 2018 World Cup. Um, before we get into the uh, sort of the details here, just talk about sort of Sweden's relationship with its national team when it comes to football. Because football is not, I, I, you can tell me, but is fo- football is not the top sport in Sweden. It is. It is definitely the top sport. Still, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing how you underestimate things. I would have <laughs> thought it was something else, but again, football is probably the most popular sport in ninety-eight percent of the world's countries. So I should probably yeah. not underestimate that. <laughs> but go on. No, but 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 that being said, I think. I mean, football is such a global sport. Everyone loves, not everyone, but very many people love it. But Sweden don't really have the, we don't breathe football in the same way that Brazilians do, as Italians do, as certain French people do. We don't have it ingrained in our culture the same way as many other countries have. And that probably reflects in many of our results, at least recently. Um, of course, there are Swedes that love football, me included. We, we, we would die for the sport. Uh, you have, I have friends that support our local teams, who are, the fan bases are amazing. But, yeah, uh, we, um, we, we don't have... I don't know if it's, it's a problem with the youth development from the Swedish FA, what it is right now, to be honest, why we aren't further up uh, than we actually are. Um, but we, we, football is definitely a big sport, just not as ingrained in the culture as it is in many other uh, many other countries. Yes, and um, there have been plenty of great Swedish players that have been imported around the world. And not just um, not just Latan, we'll get to him. Um, you talk about um, Andreas Isaacson, who had a good career. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, he's, he's a bit of a meme in Sweden, uh, but we like him anyway. Yeah, I, I kind of set you up with that one. Um, <laughs> you just have... talk about some of the, uh, just talk about some of the Swedish sort of Let's say if you had to make a top five list, sort of, of Sweden's best players, maybe from your era or from eras past. Yes, yeah, so, so uh, I'm 21, so I don't remember the uh, the old days that that well. But we had uh, in the 40s and 50s uh, Geren Oli, which is uh, Gunnar Gren, Gunnar Nodal, and Nils Lidholm, who was the front three for AC Milan, uh, who probably were some of the top players in the world if not Gunnar Nodal was probably the best striker during that time and we, so we had good players back then and they of course helped us during that area, area uh, era when we were that, uh, that good but moving on when you come close to maybe the past 20 years you of course have the, probably the, the most mem- memorable Swedish footballing 
moment uh, in modern times. You have the penalty save from Thomas Ravelli, the Swedish goalkeeper in 1994, which clinched us the uh, the bronze medal. So he's a very big figure in that sense. And then you go on, you have players like uh, Olaf Melberg, Olaf Melberg, who played in England. I are friend uh, Jonathan Johnson who's an Aston Villa fan will remember him quite fondly uh, you have Henrik Larsson of course who was one of the most cons- maybe not the best striker uh, at any given time but he was so consistent for Celtic and also when he went on uh, to play for Barcelona and Manchester United yeah, he was a very consistent player you had Frederick Longberg or Friedrich Jungberg as we say uh, also a very pro- uh, predominant footballer, uh, of course, past, part of the uh, Arsenal Invincibles. He also made a very, well, uh, he had a good international career as well. You go on right now, you have, uh, I guess we'll move on to that later as well. You have uh, Emil Forsberg, Emil Forsberg, who plays for... Uh, RB Leipzig who had the most assists in Europe's top five leagues, leagues last season so we have had a few good uh, exports the problem I guess is that we never really had a star-studded team in the way that many bigger nations have you look at um, the, the Italians uh, 2006 or, or or the French teams, you, you had world-class players in every pos- position. You, we've never had that in Sweden, almost. Um, but but we have, we have, we've had many good players, uh, for sure. Let me ask you, between, and this is probably when you started watching most, so you got to start being a fan right as Sweden didn't qualify for two consecutive World Cups. <laughs> And um, let's see what they did in the 2012 European Championships. Uh, They did not do well at all. They were in the group stage. They didn't get further than that. And in 2016, they went um, out in the group stage as well. And what was supposed to be Zlatan Ibrahimovic's um, international retirement maybe still is. So you can make the argument. But I would say from that time frame, from 2006 to 2014, Zlatan Ibrahimovic is probably a, if not top 10, top 15, top 20 player in the world. Yeah. And they can't win. They can't get to a World Cup. Why do you think that was? We had, from, let's see if I can find it here, uh exactly what years are uh, managers um, now I can't find it on the top of my head but we had a very pragmatic coach in Lars Lagerbeck uh, who was the uh, who also was the Iceland manager for the 2016 Euros he coached us I think it was uh, up to 2008 to 2009 uh, and, and, and he was solid not more, much more than that very defensive manager then we brought in someone called Erik Hamrian who 
I think he he coached in the Norwegian league and won the league with the, uh, with their best team. And then we brought him on as international manager, and then nothing worked. He was a very, in, in some senses, like Unai Emery. He was uh, he couldn't really handle the ego of Slatan. And not 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 that uh, Emery coached Slatan, but he he had a hard time um, uh, sort of imposing his views on the big players, or the big player in this case. Uh, he. Tactically, he switched formation as I guess like twenty times. There were no cons- was no consistency. Uh, it was quite a dark time. Even though we maybe didn't notice it while it was happening, when we look back at it right now, um, n- nothing happened. It was just very uh, we stood still, really, uh, and it was for, for most part down to. To him, Eric Cameron, and the manager who left in 2016 after the Euros. Um, that being said, a lot of fault has to fall on the players as well, uh, or the Swedish FA for not developing developing better players in that time. Um, many of our big or semi big players, you had Kim. Selström, who shares a last name with me, uh, he played uh, for Lyon. He played, uh, of course, have that weird stint in you know, at Arsenal. Uh, and you have sort of mediocre players that in the Swedish national team were very good uh, compared to the others. But the, the quality just wasn't there, uh, and it was a shame, really, because to have really good players backing Slatan up, it would be interesting to see. Uh, but we we didn't really have that uh, during that era. So Zlatan retires in 2016 from international competition. Yeah. And France, no, sorry, sweet. I said France because Sweden <laughs> was drawn into a qualification group with France, the Netherlands, and Bulgaria. Now. Yeah. There was also and Luxembourg and Belarus, but they yeah. were the they were the uh, they were the the, the afterthoughts. This yeah. Sweden run was really not supposed to happen. Now you would well, have obviously thought. I think you would have thought, even though the Netherlands have been the Netherlands have fallen off a cliff, but even with that, you would think that the Netherlands would be favored over over Sweden to advance. You would think, naturally, if you looked at two teams in this group, it would be France and the Netherlands. Now, obviously, you're going to tell us why Sweden was able to sort of overcome all that. And I would say a more unlikely than not qualification. But yeah, tell us why in a, gr- in a group that didn't necessarily favor them, although they, I would say they were the third best team in the group going into it. And then you have to play Italy in a two t- in a two game tie, and yeah. whether you want to think that Italy sort of blew it or that Sweden did exactly what they had to do to qualify, it doesn't really matter. In the end, Sweden's going to the World Cup. So yeah. just sort of talk about that run and sort of how it sort of happened and. What they did to, to uh, go against the odds. 
Yeah, so when you look at the odds, you're, you're probably right that people favoured Holland to or the Netherlands to go through. But not with that big of a margin. Uh, there are always two sides of the story. You can look at it from a Swedish perspective. You can look at it from a uh, from Netherlands perspective. If you look at it from a Netherlands perspective, they had the better. If you look player by player, they have the better squad. But football is about so so much more than that. You have to have unity. You have to play as a team, and they didn't do that. They. Uh, they looked like shambles when I when I watched them at many times. They have Ari and Robin. They had other good players, but just didn't come together for them. When you then turn to Sweden, you have a team that, in essence, is more of a uh, how do you say more than the sum of its parts. Is that how you the, the expression yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, you have decent players, solid players uh, from the back. As you mentioned Andreas Isaacson, the, the previous goalkeeper. He was switched out from uh, for uh, Robin Olsen, who plays in FC Copenhagen. A, a decent goalkeeper, not 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 more than that. Then you have an experienced right back in Mikael Lustig, who played for Celtic. Um, yeah, an, an experienced figure, really. Uh, not not many, not not much fuss about him, really. Then you have. Giran Kvist, who's the Swedish captain, he plays for Krasnodar in Russia, which might, uh, yeah, it indicates a lesser level, really, but he's a very good defender. He's strong, he's a great leader, he's good with the ball. M- many from the international audience probably don't know who he is, uh, but he's he's easily the best defender uh, out of him, and Viktor Lindelöf plays for Manchester United. Uh, and w- when you go forward in team, no real names poke out except for probably um, Emil Forsberg. Emil Forsberg. Um, but the thing that made this work was our new manager, um, who he won in 2015. Uh, he won the Swedish league with IFK Norrköping. Uh, which at the time wasn't a team that anyone expected to win. Uh, I think they finished mid-table or something the the year before, but they, uh, under his management, they managed to win. Uh, Jan Andersson is his name, Jan Andersson. Um, and he just made this team work as a unit, as a team, um, in a very rigid 4-4-2 system, which is the go-to system for a team that doesn't have any stand-out players, except for uh, Forsberg, of course, who brings that flair. I think we wouldn't have any... Ch- well, we, had, we, we probably wouldn't have gone through without him. Uh, it's, I, I don't want to compare it to Atletico Madrid because they're a far, far better team than, than Sweden are. Um, but in that team, you, you for a long period of time, you had a very rigid 4-4-2 system. Then you had uh, Antoine Griezmann, along with a couple of others, that brought that flair. And it's, it works in a little bit the same way as it does with Sweden. So during that campaign, um, we just produced good football. We had a good system that worked. 
we beat, let's see, so the first game was uh, versus the Netherlands, uh, 6th of September 2016, 1-1 results, decent results, probably should have, uh, uh, would have preferred to win that game, we didn't, uh, then we went on to beat Luxembourg, only 1-0, Basile is a win, went on to beat Bulgaria 3-0, and then I remember, I remember this game very quite a lot because since I'm a PSG fan, I like to follow the French PSG players when they play for France. And then now they came up against Sweden. Um, and it was a game... Yeah, um, from the start of the game, I really didn't think we had a chance. Uh, but then uh, Giroud scored, uh, four specs scored from a free kick. From about 30 yards, which Hugo Lori uh, he, he fumbled it. Yeah, Fran- France. Uh, France. Pl- uh, is this the one where Loris made the two mistakes? No, no. I, I think that no. The, this is uh, he, he made mistakes in both games. Yeah, this well, wasn't yeah. as bad as the other one. Yeah. Uh, so, so this was the big game at the Stade de France in France, two yeah. one. But it still lifted morale. I mean, going to France is not an easy. Uh, it's, it's not an easy task, but. We at least gave them a match, and we were close to at least getting a point. Then we went on to play the Belarus. Uh, Belarus won there, and then 9th of June, 2017. I think yeah, it's close. Uh, 11 months from now, roughly, uh, and we play France at the French Arena, our national stadium. <sighs> what a game! Uh, it of course got. Uh, during the last moments of the game uh, Hugo uh, Hugo Lloris the goalkeeper for France foolishly just kicked it into the middle of the park Ola Toivonen of all people he played for uh, for Rennes he played for Sunderland he is now playing for Toulouse he (laughs) he hit the ball in a way that he would never do his entire life because he's a he's a (laughs) He's not a very good footballer. Let's say, let's put it that way. And he hits it from half, from the halfway line, and it crosses the uh, the French goal line. And uh, yeah, it was insane. I remember I, I was on the way back from a from a training session with my team, and I had it up on my phone like a stream. And I was in the store uh, going to had, had to grab dinner, and then I stood there with a couple of strangers just watching the final whistles and we the whole Superman just screamed when it happened uh, it was it's completely amazing I mean beating France uh, for me as well who has French connections that was magical um, and then we yeah, it sort of went on we had a bit of a yeah, we managed to lose yeah. to Bulgaria, which, uh, which which would happen. But I, I think, in general, the important thing is you get yeah. to that you get to that point where you get second. Yeah, and then you go in to face Italy, and I would say Sweden defended about as well as I've ever seen a team defend in that type of circumstance. With that, with Italy, I mean, Italy wasn't giving the offensive threat that I think they should have. For some yeah. reason, they couldn't get a coach that understood how to actually unleash their attacking players. Yeah. But Sweden did exactly what they needed to do. And now you get a World Cup. Yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing. I'm 
There has been sort of periods during the past couple of months where I've forgotten that there is a World Cup this summer, then I remember it and I'm full of joy again. Yes. Uh, and it's just so as an amazing. American, I don't you... know that feeling, but as a as a French um, with French ancestry, I at least have the French national team to yeah. to go with, but yeah. Yeah, um, no, it's amazing, and that Italy game, with those Italy games, as you said, the defending was impeccable, it was so great, and, and the, the great thing about the team as well is that we had a couple of injuries um, uh, to, to certain players, but since you don't really have a star-studded team, it's easy to sort of change players uh, as long as they, the players that come in know the system you're playing and it wouldn't make that much of a difference we had uh, Gustav I think it's Gustav Svensson who actually played for Seattle Sounders I think uh, you're playing right. that Gustav game. Svensson yes um we did very well uh, and then we managed to beat uh, Italy and now we're going to going to the World Cup as you said which is um, completely amazing and let's talk about the large, ginormous elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. So, I, I can only imagine Zlatan uh, sitting in his, um, I guess, whatever English home he rented that particular, um, that for his Manchester United stay, seeing yeah. the Sweden team as a collective make it to the World Cup without him, and all of a sudden... That retirement isn't so um, retirement-y anymore. And he wants... Maybe he wants back in. He thinks he may be able to get back in. Apparently, the Swedish FA has said that he will not be selected for the World Cup. Now, here's here's my question. And I think it's the obvious one. Do you want what I guess could arguably be said is Sweden's best player in the last 30 years to be at a world, to be at this world cup. No, no, uh, I, I, I thought you'd say that, but go on. Yeah. So with, with the Slatin situation, I actually never believed in it whatsoever. Um, I, I always, I and many other Swedes sort of knew within us that this was, uh, the last thing, well, the US was the last uh, tournament that Slatan would go to for Sweden. Then he he has played ball with the media. He went on Jimmy Kimmel Live and spoke about it. He's a very, he is a smart man. He's building his brand uh, marketing wise. And he, he has. Uh, connections with uh, well he has a sponsorship deal thing with Visa the credit card company who is a major sponsor of uh, of, uh, of FIFA and the World Cup and that's one reason why he sort of kept the ball rolling uh, to have people still talking about him and talking about his will or will he not be at the World Cup but ma- many Swedes, at least, who were who were sort of we we were watching the situation maybe a little bit more closer than many of the international audience was. We knew that he wasn't going, and it was just a question of time before the Swedish FA actually announced it. 
Um, but he wanted to uh, to keep the ball rolling as long as he wanted, and fair play to him. Uh, he he's making a lot of money from all this. Uh, well, he, he has a com- clothing company. He's making deals with Visa. Um, uh, he has a deal with Samsung right now. So he just wanted to keep his name out there, just in the same way that, uh, well. Eh. I don't know if you've seen, but Kanye West has been seeing a lot of controversial things, but, and he's probably dropping an album. He wants to stay relevant, uh, yeah. and he wants people to 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 to, uh, to notice him uh, when he uh, when he goes out there with his his product, with his brand, if it be him or if it's actually a normal company. So, for footballing wise for Sweden, I never really felt the need or felt that he actually was going. So let me let me pose this hypothetical to you. Yeah. Um, here are the three group stage games for Sweden in the order that they're going to be in. Sweden's going to play South Korea. They're going to play Germany in a game that more likely than not they'll lose. Yeah. Sweden has a very good chance to beat South Korea. So let's say Sweden wins that game. Let's say Sweden beats South Korea and loses mm-hmm. to Germany. Let's say Mexico beats South Korea and loses to Germany. All very possible hypotheticals. That brings you down to the last game, Mexico versus Sweden. With yeah. the winner of that game going to the going to the round of 16, and depending on the goal differential and all that, possibly a tie will do it. Mm-hmm. 70th minute, Sweden can't score. Mexico are up one. Sweden only needs a goal. To get to the World Cup, the round of 16. You look to the bench. Zlatan's not there. At that point, and I know this is a hypothetical, but I draw out this hypothetical to sort of get you into the sort of most, I'd say, leveraged situation where you would flip on your opinion, which would be this situation right here. Would you be... As a fan of Sweden who watches the team, who roots for the team, would you be okay at that point going, we don't have Zlatan, but it was the right decision? At that point, would you still stick with your decision or with your thought? Definitely. With with Zlatan in the squad, the whole identity would be lost. The, the, the thing that actually made Sweden go to the World Cup in the first place would be lost. The sense of unity, the sense of chemistry w- would be damaged if he went. I mean, he, he's a big player. I love him. I have a poster up in my in my bed in my childhood bedroom of him. Uh, but he is a controversial figure, and he would damage that team chemistry-wise. So the, the the win against South Korea that would definitely not be guaranteed if Zlatan was amongst the squad and possibly damaging the chemistry and what kind of message would that send to the players that got got themselves to that place that okay we have a we, we have another like an old legend coming in just because of his name recognition uh, who hasn't been able to take Sweden to a world cup in, in his prime time so for, for me, it's, it's, it's a it's a big no, and we have Ola Toivonen in the squad, so he will score a hat trick last fifteen minutes, and we will be fine. <laughs> Perfect. That's the exact answer I wanted to draw out of you there. 
So, yeah. um, your expectations for Sweden. Do you think they get out of that group? I mean, uh, it, it literally, well, it probably depends on that game. And if, if I say yes, no, it depends. It, it could be as much as a touch of the ball from a toe. I don't know. I'm going to be honest, I have no idea. I hope, um, and I know Sweden have the ability, but so have Mexico. They have some great players. They have Carlos Vea, they have Miguel Ayun, uh, I believe. Is Marquez still playing, the, the center back? Uh, no, he uh, he was arrested for drug trafficking charges. So oh, he will not be at damn. the 2018 World Cup. Damn. Isn't he like 40-something something years like old? something like that, yeah. Yeah, oh shame. Uh, and they have, uh, I think, Mexico probably have a better caliber of players as to if they have the same team setup or chemistry. I don't know. Uh, from what I've, from things I've picked up about Mexican uh, Mexican culture, which is, uh, yeah, it is quite limited. They have a sense of togetherness i guess um but um we'll see flip of the coin though flip of the coin yeah you think Uh, they get through very much so (sighs) my heart says yes my head says no okay so and just for the record when you um I totally want to get you and Eduardo Razo on Skype during that game, just to sort of <laughs> see that back and forth and just be in the middle of that dynamic. That would be kind of fun. Um, yeah, it would. We have to, before we go, since you're um, you're of the Nordic region, mm-hmm. let's talk about Iceland in the sense yeah. that they are by far the um, Cinderella story is a little cliche, But let's be realistic. They did not qualify for a World Cup or a European Championship until 2016. And they made it to the quarterfinals. Now, that was a really wacky European Championship where the football was just god-awful. But regardless of that, they still got there. They they beat England. So, you know, hats off to them. They have developed a really strong um, youth system for a country that literally does not have a million people in it. I don't believe they have a million people. I think they have less than that. I think they have something like, let's see, Google. Uh, Yeah, it's 334,252 people. Yes, and they found 15 to 16 of those people that can play football very, very well. And you have them spread out into all different leagues around Europe. All of them play in Europe for the most part. Some play in Turkey. Um, one plays in Israel. You have... Um, I think you have some in the Swedish League as well. You have some in the Swedish League. You have... Um, they're In general, they're spread out. But they have a mm-hmm. good presence in Europe now. They have players that play in... Um, I believe in Swan. They had one to play at Swansea City, right? They have well, well they have uh, Gilfi Sigurdsson who, yeah, who played Gilfie, for Swansea last season. Yeah, he, and transferred to so he, he's their main. He's at Everton right now, main right? Main player. Yeah, he's at Everton. He hasn't done very well Wasting at Everton. Wasting away at Everton, like exactly. most, so most that, players that's more they go to Everton, their 
uh, to their uh, recruiting policy when yeah. it comes to players. They bought like 10, no. number 10s or something. Yeah, but to, to kind of go on that, is Iceland sort of a... Um, okay, they're never going to win the World Cup. They're no. probably never going to... They're probably never going to even get to a semi or a quarter. But are they sort of a nice story? Or is there sort of something to that footballing culture that can get them to get through a group that's a really hard group? But is there just something about them that's different? That maybe, just maybe, with the way they play and their collective spirit and their heart and their will... They can eke out enough points and things can go the right way that they can win a game against Nigeria or Croatia, get a point against one of those other teams and not lose too badly against Argentina and somehow get to the round of 16. Because I think if they got to the round of 16 in this World Cup, I think that would be a massive achievement. And one of the more, um, I would put it, honestly, I would put it up there with what Leicester City did in the Premier League. Yeah. In that sense. Uh, I think you'd have to put it in that category. Definitely. Uh, I think what happened during the 2016 Euros was amazing. Everyone except the, the British was behind them and wanted them to do well in that game. And they did. They had a phenomenal team spirit. They had a phenomenal uh, collective setup. And much of that was down to their then coach, uh, Lasse Lagerbeck, who also was the, uh, the the coach I mentioned earlier for Sweden. Uh, who, fun fact, I actually had his son in PE in school, and they were they're incredibly similar, very pragmatic men, both of them. Um, as if they can do it in this World Cup, never say never. Most likely, no, though. Uh, if you look at the the caliber of player they have compared to Nigeria has a very very strong and young team. You have Croatia who has a who's a brilliant midfield and Mansukic up top, and of course you have Argentina led by the best player in the world. But they can do it, of course, uh, if they manage to um, to grasp on that sort of. I don't want to say nationalism, but patriotism, healthy patriotism yeah. uh, that they had during the Euro years. There is, of course, a chance. Um, and I would love to see them go through. There would be, uh, as a Nordic or Scandinavian country, it would be, everyone would be proud of them. Um, as as a, a lot of our history, uh, going back many hundreds of years, um, sort of intertwine between Iceland, Norway, Denmark to to a certain degree, um, and and to see our, our brothers and sisters or cousins or whatever you want to call it um, accomplish something great, as you said, get 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 out of that group would be amazing, and I really hope they will. Uh, it will it will be hard though, but if if they can find a collective system that works. They definitely have it. Have a shot. So we'll end on that. Um, Carl, um, plug your Twitter um, <laughs> and talk about sort of what you do on it and sort of the type of um, the type of PSG Twitter uh, blogger. Again, there's not really a word I can think about it, but <laughs> I enjoy your account. 
and I think you are one of the you're one of the voices that I and let me put it this way: there's a lot of PSG Twitter is bigger than you'd think. Definitely. And there's a lot of people that I just kind of don't pay any mind to because I don't I don't respect their opinion. Yours is one that I respect greatly. So just tell the people where they can find you and what you do and how you and your perspective on things, and uh, we'll we'll ride off into the sunset. Yeah. So my Twitter uh, actually is, it's already yeah. twelve thirty at night in uh, in Sweden, <laughs> so the sun's already gone for you guys. But yeah, it, it is. Uh, I have the moon though uh, yeah. lighting up the the ocean just uh, in front of me, so not that bad. Okay, but my I am Twitter is. <laughs> so now uh, my, my Twitter is C.O. Kulstrom or everything PSG and you will probably be able to find it um, and I think I, I mix sort of comedic or uh, I like to make small jokes and I, but I also like to add a, a bit of seriousness as well uh, to my tweets uh, I have quite strong opinions about certain players and certain coaches and certain teams and I think uh, I believe people appreciate what I what I have to say be it serious or be it comedic uh, I actually lo- like to look at stats as well I think they tell not the whole story but they tell a, they paint a, a good picture of a player or, or a team so please if you want to go and Visit my Twitter and have a look. Follow me if if you like, or if you don't, don't. I <laughs> I will survive. Ringing endorsement from Carl Oscar for his Twitter page, everybody. So um, no, yeah. I, I seriously um, I, I follow you. I think you're one of the better ones uh, out in a vast uh, universe of um, uninformed people. Some of them, I a lot of opinions I. Exp- I respect yours. I respect more than those people's. So thank you very much, Carl, for coming on. And for Carl Oscar Karlström, or how do you say it in Swedish? Carl Oscar Kjellström. Yes, what he said. (laughs) This has been PSG Talk contributor and your World Cup podcast host, Mark Damon, saying au revoir for now. Thank you for listening to the World Cup Project. Our next episode will feature Tyler Dunn of Banter FC discussing the mess that is United States soccer and the machine-like efficiency that is the German national team. The theme for the World Cup Project is provided by Dutch supergroup Orgel Vretten, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes and Spotify. This show was brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site for all things Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on upcoming World Cup Project episodes. And as always, this is your host, Mark Damon, saying once again, au revoir for now.